For those tuning in for the first time, the HQ is a podcast serial produced by CHA Learning. CHA Learning is the professional development division of Healthcare Can and is uniquely Canada's only fully online learning provider serving all of healthcare. So please check out more about our learning programs and services after this episode and discover how we collaborate with health leaders and organizations to empower healthcare professionals with the knowledge, skills, and relationships to impact health system improvement. Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ Podcast, where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading and impacting the health system. Together, we'll explore these topics as we continue to learn together. So welcome, listeners, as we discuss one of those most fundamental components of life, nutrition. Yes, with March being National Nutrition Month, we're going to take another bite out of this complex topic. And yes, I couldn't resist the pun. Nutrition is not synonymous with food, though clearly we need to eat to live, what, when, how, and where we eat will impact the benefits of the food we consume. Good nutrition nourishes our physical and mental health. What we eat impacts the health of our musculoskeletal, cognitive, and immune systems. It can positively or negatively impact our cardiovascular health, It can also prevent or increase, among many other risk factors, our risk of diabetes, cancer, and osteoporosis, all of which increase as we age. And as our guest also reminded us last year, where and with whom we eat plays an important part in our psychosocial health, and it is a choice we can or should be given throughout life. But how do we know if a person is eating well or enough? The food or junk food choices my 12-year-old son makes when he's not with me will likely not adversely affect the quality of his life. But what about the food choices we make as we become 50, 60, 70, and so on? By some accounts, these choices after 50 become much more important. But how do we measure and evaluate this? Or quite frankly, do we? Do we just ask if someone has eaten? Do we just look at someone and assume that body shape is indicative of nutritional health? Do most people, let alone healthcare professionals, know what malnutrition is, how to spot it, or know where this very slippery slope can lead. What role does our healthcare system and the professionals play in any of this? And if any of those questions have you concerned, wait till we discuss the frightening horizon for any who might find themselves with dementia. To discuss all this and more, I'm thrilled to be joined again by Professor Heather Keller, the Schlegel Research Chair in Nutrition and Aging at the University of Waterloo. She's an internationally recognized expert in geriatric nutrition, assessment, and treatment. Her research areas focus on nutrition, risk, and malnutrition identification and treatment across care sectors, improving nutrition care processes and implementing screening and other best practices, supporting food intake of diverse groups living in the community, including those living with dementia, and improving hospital and residential food and promoting food intake and other mealtime experiences in these settings. Professor Keller has led several national research and knowledge translation projects, including the landmark Nutrition Care in Canadian Hospitals, More to Eat, and Making the Most of Mealtimes and Long-Term Care Studies. Professor Keller has published more than 250 peer-reviewed articles and translates much of this evidence into practice with tools and resources. As a founding member and a past chair and co-chair of the Canadian Malnutrition Task Force, She is involved in translating research into practice and advocating for improvements in nutrition care. 
She is currently the co-chair of the primary care working group for the Canadian Malnutrition Task Force and is involved in several national and international expert groups advancing the prevention, detection, and treatment of malnutrition. So hi, Heather, and welcome back to the HQ. It's great to be back, Dale. I really enjoyed our conversation last year about the Choice Plus program. So thank you for, again, kicking off this uh, really great month as we talk about uh, National Nutrition Month here in Canada. It's great to be here. Yes, National Nutrition Month gives us an opportunity to remind ourselves of the importance of nutrition in our lives. So it's yeah, great to be here. Yeah. Exactly. We take it for granted. So, um, you know, so maybe on that, before we start talking about the arc of a person sort of interacting with our health system and how nutrition plays a role in that, let's just, I mean, not take for granted that everybody understands what we're talking about when we mm-hmm. talk about nutrition or the antithesis of that malnutrition. So what is it? and Maybe what isn't it? That's really good to make that distinction. So food is what we eat, food and fluid. That's what we consume. What our body does with it, that's nutrition. And so it's dependent on our needs at that time. If we're growing, for example, we're going to be perhaps absorbing more than someone who's finished their growth. If we happen to have a disease condition that affects our absorption of nutrients, that's going to affect our nutrition. So nutrition is basically when the food and fluid are in our body and it's nourishing our body. Um, So it is different from actually what we eat. Malnutrition would be what happens when we're not doing, um, our body isn't getting enough nutrition to meet its needs. And so uh, we often think of this as um, just undernutrition, so people who look underweight, Mm -hmm. but really it's also our micronutrients. So we think about um, being low in calcium, for example, and vitamin D, we call that, you know, potentially osteoporosis if they have the functional deficit that results from that. But that's actually a form of malnutrition in essence, if it's because the diet is not sufficient to meet the nutritional needs of the person. So I like to use a definition that talks about the need for uh, the intake of the food and our use of that food in the body is such that uh, our function is impaired and that is malnutrition. So if I don't eat, for example, enough vitamin C this week, I'm unlikely to be malnourished. But if I continue to not eat vitamin C for a very long period of time, maybe a few months, then you'll see the the symptoms of scurvy, which is basically the deficient state of of vitamin C in the body. So it's that functional change in the body that's a result of that poor nutritional intake, whether it be a vitamin, a mineral, protein, or energy itself as well. Okay, I think that's great. So it's obviously a lot more complex than just simply a person who looks like they're too thin, um, uh, you, you know, being presented in front of us. That's right, exactly. So you could be overweight, but have a micronutrient that you're deficient in because of your dietary choices, or again, because of something in terms of disease state that might affect the ability to absorb and use that nutrient the way you should. Great, thank you, Heather. So perhaps we can start by acknowledging, uh, as we guess we begin this part of our conversation, that no matter how good our health system is, no one wants to spend a night in a hospital. Um, you know, versus the alternative sleeping in the comfort of their own home. So we come to hospitals because we have to, uh, because something's not right with us. Um, And if I were to look at people around me, like my elderly father is an example, I know that that they can sometimes be severely challenged by the prospect of a hospital admission. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the things around food and nutrition that could impact their hospital stay? Yeah. So first off, hospitals are not meant for long stays. And so typically a menu in hospital is seven days in length, then it continues to rotate, right? And so if you're there for any longer than seven days, it gets very boring very quickly, as you can imagine. It's the same choices available to you. Um, Then secondly, uh, um, 
we're not always as concerned as we should be about what someone's eating in a hospital. We're more concerned about, are they um, having a fever? How's their heart rate? Just we're not always monitoring it very well. Certainly, um, Diverse professionals will monitor it and, and nursing staff do on a uh, routine basis also monitor it, but is it accurate? That always is a concern as well for us. It's not one of those things like medication. We're very conscious of how accurate it needs to be and getting to the right person. So there tends to be one of those tasks, if you will, in a hospital setting that is underplayed in its importance. And so, oh, the person didn't eat the tray, they're sleeping, they must not be hungry, and the tray is taken away. So that oversight around food intake um, maybe isn't as great as it should be, uh, especially when you think about people living in long-term care, for example, people are a little bit more on top of when someone's not eating well, because they recognize that as a common challenge in that setting. But in the hospital, it's taken down to the fact the person's not feeling well, they don't want to eat the food or they don't like the food. They're leaving anyway in a few days. We won't worry about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's a significant challenge. And then there's also the barriers that happen in a hospital that don't happen in your own home around food intake. For example, you're sitting in bed. No one gets you out of bed to eat your food. And it's really hard to spoon that jello or drink from that uh, cup of milk or that, or that uh, teacup when you're laying down in bed. So just even positioning people to be successful can be a challenge because it takes time. Right. Uh, especially if people have got lots of lines going into them and and they're feeling rather tired. Sitting up in bed to eat is not something necessary that they want to do. Um, and, and staff might not have time to reposition them. If they happen to be an older adult, they might need their eyeglasses on. They might need their hearing aids in. They might need their teeth in. And those things might be at the bedside and they can't reach them. So now we have a problem now of not just accessing the food from the tray, but actually access the foods because of our visual deficits and things like that. Sometimes a tray is even put out of reach. And so you can imagine um, an older person again in hospital, the trays at the, or the tables at the end of the bed, because maybe housekeeping moved it there when they were cleaning the floors, didn't put it back. And the person coming in with a tray, that's their job is just to put it on the tray table, not to open the tray, not to set up the person for success. So they can't even reach their tray. Um, we did a study, uh, the, um, the hospital study that you were talking about at the beginning in my intro, 18 hospitals in Canada, a good portion of people just can't reach their tray in hospital because it's not in the right place for them to do so. So that's that's a key concern. And then finally, you think about what's on the plate itself. It might not be, you might not have a choice to eat that food. It's um, maybe you're in a hospital where they have a set menu and there's no choices. Only if you have an allergy or um, a key dislike to something, are they offering something else? So culturally, it might not be appropriate. Even just preference wise, it's not appropriate for you and you have no interest in eating it. Um, and then finally, opening all those little packages. <laughs> <laughs> that we have in hospital, you know, little little things for sugar and milk and even everything's uh, sort of packed uh, so that it can be transported. Often food is not made in hospitals anymore. It's uh, trade uh, elsewhere and the trays come to the hospital and re are rethermed. And so they're covered over in these sorts of, of various uh, plastics to keep them food safe, which is great, but can be hard to, to remove. And that maybe brings me to my last thing is the way we do food service uh, in hospitals. Many different models are out there, uh, but we've moved away from making our own food in hospitals. And as I said, we get food often made at a, a, a regional site and it's brought to the hospital. It's trade at that regional site, a standard tray. And um, and then it's brought up to the unit where the person may be and plugged in if it needs to be rethermed. And that's what's provided. So if you don't like it, 
too bad. Or if your soup spills, there's no replacement because those those aren't available in the hospital. Um, other hospitals have moved back to kitchens because they recognize this is a significant issue. They need to have food on site prepared. And some are doing things like having food service models where they are, so I should say, um, bedside restaurant models where they have a room service model, I guess the term is, where a person calls when they're hungry and they have a limited list of things they can choose. They can choose those foods then. It's more like a, a takeout service, if you will, coming to your mm -hmm. bedside. And that they find people do better on because they're eating when they want and they're eating what they want. And the food is freshly prepared in the hospital. So there are some good things happening, tend to be some things that need to be improved though around barriers to food intake for sure in hospital. Yeah, and, and I think that is really good level setting for us. I mean, in terms of just understanding so many things that we take for granted, you know, as we sit down at our dining room table, you know, every night with our family. And the biggest thing I have to concern myself with is, you know, whether, you know, my son is eating with his hands or has too much food coming into his mouth, right? So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there's, there's obviously a lot more to the ergonomics and the settings and mm -hmm. things like that, that... Um, you know, that for those of us, I guess, that are capable or abled in those settings that, um, you know, may find challenging in other spaces. Right. Right. And, you know, the challenge, again, with older adults is you mentioned the point that when you're younger and not eating as well, it may not be as much of a challenge. But as you get older, you have less reserve to play with. Right. And so you put an older adult into a hospital bed and you keep them there for three days. They're losing muscle now. Right. And they're laying in bed and they don't have any muscle to lose versus a younger person. They also may lose some muscle, maybe not as quickly, but they can recapture that muscle when they leave the hospital pretty quickly. An older adult, not so much. Um, and then, you know, they're not eating well because they don't feel hungry and no one's really noticing in that problem, right? It's not being caught. Again, then they leave the hospital and that poor appetite continues, right? So it's an ongoing cycle that is worsened um, because a person happens to be older and has less reserve to recapture that improved appetite as well as capture that muscle uh, when they leave the hospital. So speaking of coming and going, I mean, hospitals can be obviously can be confusing places. I mean, there's a lot of different, you know, parts of them. There's, you know, signs on the walls, lines on the floors. Um, you know, I think of myself every time I go into a hospital for whatever reason, um, you know, as a very literate, capable person. And I often and myself and I'm getting lost having to ask for instructions. And, you know, God forbid, I've been I'm coming there because I've been fasting beforehand um you know so so yeah you quickly become very disoriented and overwhelmed with all of that so can you provide you know from your own perspective and research you know what are some of the other challenges that other older adults or those with cognitive impairments may be experiencing in those settings as well yeah and so it, the hospital can be extremely challenging for the things that you just mentioned uh, the lighting the um we seem to have lots of things often in the hall that clutter up the hall, equipment and laundry bags and things like that. And everything's very sterile, of course, and um, putting, you know, uh, curtains around a bed for privacy. All that, though, can lead to isolation for a person who's an older adult. They're, they're staying in their bed. They might want to get up and wander and do the things they usually do at home and they're not allowed to. So they might then have to, um, you know, be... Uh, shown to stay in the bed that sort of thing mm -hmm. um they might have um uh challenges now again with that 
isolation, family not being there continually, they really feel disoriented, right? Um, there's certainly some great programs out there like um, help and other programs, volunteer programs that try to support older adults in this situation. So they avoid delirium um, and they try to re remain having the comfortability they do have. But you often see, you know, someone who didn't have really any noticeable um, cognitive challenges when they went into hospital, maybe they broke their hip. And the anesthesia, the being in a hospital post that hip fracture and that um, that pinning that they do, the surgery, and then not eating and being disoriented to time and place, you now start to see perhaps this person has some cognitive problems. And maybe they even will give them medications to try to address some of the behaviors like the person want to get out of bed, things like that at night that they mm -hmm. don't want the person to do to slip and fall. And so it can be a spiral down, unfortunately, in terms of someone's cognition pretty readily. So as family, being cognizant of the fact that this hospital is a very challenging time for older adults um, and those that might have some cognitive impairment, especially challenging. So what can we do to support them? Making sure they're hydrated for sure, right? To avoid that delirium, making sure there's um, a clock in the room so they can feel oriented to time and place. Um, making sure that staff also orient them to the time and place saying, you know, it's it's now midnight, you need to go back to bed rather than just taking the person back to bed. Mm -hmm. um, I think training our staff as well as about how to address persons with dementia, how to approach them, how to interact with them. So you don't then have someone striking out because they're afraid. I'll give you an anecdote. My mom lives in long-term care. So this is not a hospital scenario, but you can imagine it could be similar to that. Yeah. She happens to be in a wheelchair. And so she can't mobilize herself very well. And, um, and people will often come into room, other residents, maybe their staff, whoever that may be. And she will hear something and she'll yell because she's afraid, right? She's afraid that something could happen to her. Her back has turned. She doesn't know what's happening. And she's also slightly blind. So poor of hearing, you know, slightly blind and now in a chair. And she's going to yell or if someone touches on her shoulder. She might turn and with her arm and strike out because she's afraid. So thinking again about people with dementia, you're, you're approaching them as you would someone who doesn't have dementia, who doesn't necessarily have the same... Um, challenges with inputs to what's going on around them. Now they do have those challenges, visual included, hearing, but also perhaps cognition. And they sometimes will do things that are unexpected. And then they're labeled, unfortunately, as someone who's aggressive, someone who is hitting out at other people when really if you understand this was a response to what you did as staff, quite frankly, that was not expected, that was not anticipated by the person, and they got upset, right? But I think staff sometimes, again, in hospital may not have that understanding as people might have in long-term care and be less likely to jump to conclusions about what to do about that. So that's something to be, I think, very cognizant of. Um, the food and fluid acid is really important again, so the person doesn't get delirium. Um, they tend to, again, have challenges eating alone, eating with others, if we can somehow support that in a, a ward, having an area that a variety of uh, um, patients can go and sit together and eat together, provide that social opportunity um, for eating that can support them to then eat their meal rather than just go, oh, I don't know what to do with this and leave it to the side, right? So I think there's some things we can do to support these individuals for sure, um, but they're especially vulnerable. Mm, thank you. Um, so you, you've, you know, as part of that, you've certainly spoken about the importance of getting enough to eat while in hospital to prevent nutrition. Um, as you said, you, you're not, ex you know, we're not expected to be there for more than seven days and, and the, and the impacts of that that come with that. So 
in terms of the people who are coming to the hospital, right? Um, you know, how common is malnutrition in terms of those that are presenting? Um, you know, how common is it in older adults in our in our general population? Yeah, that's a really great question. So it seems to be pretty consistent. Um, so we did the study in the 18 hospitals in 2010 and 2013, and we chose to um, recruit people from gastrointestinal wards. So obviously we'll have a potential problem with malnutrition and medical wards and surgical wards. But we chose to um, include people that had been in the hospital for at least two days and were likely to stay for another couple of days. So that meant automatically they're going to be a little bit sicker than your person stays only two days in hospital. And mm -hmm. we found that one in two, about 45% or so, had malnutrition, either moderate malnutrition or severe malnutrition. And we used um, a clinical exam to determine that. Since that time, we've been doing now screening and identification of those at risk of malnutrition, and then then going onwards towards this, this clinical exam, we're finding about 20 to 30% are malnourished. So it's a little bit lower, but that's because we're doing everybody now in some of these hospitals, not just those that are staying two days or longer in the hospital. So I would say it's between one in five and one in three or, or one in two. And older adults especially are at increased risk. So I, I bet your next question is going to be why? <laughs> and, and, and that's because it, it, living in the community, um, we haven't recognized that they're running into nutrition problems. So mm -hmm. um, maybe they've, again, been living alone, um, coasting along a little bit. No one's really noticing they've lost a bit of weight. Maybe they're getting unsteady on their feet. Um, and then they fall and they break their hip and they end up in hospital. And then it's recognized, oh, this is actually malnutrition. They've lost a lot of muscle tissue. They've lost fat tissue. They haven't been eating as well as they should be, et cetera. And they've lost function as well. And so um, we recognize it because that crisis situation, but it probably was happening in the community. And when we did our, our large study again in, in the 18 hospitals, we found that predictors of being malnourished at admission were older adults who required the help of their children to do the grocery shopping. So again, that means some level of dependence or inability to do your own grocery shopping. They also were taking typically some sort of oral nutrition supplement already. So someone was recognizing they're not doing well, but obviously it wasn't enough to mm -hmm. recover their nutrition. And then thirdly, they had some functional challenges, right? And so these people are in our community. We may think, oh, let's give them one supplement a day, but is that really enough to nurture them and nourish them properly? That is, you know, maybe 300 calories, maybe, um, you know, 20 grams of protein, but they need more than that. They need 1600 calories, right? And uh, 100 grams of protein a day or something like that. And so um, you can see that that isn't, it's a little bit of a band-aid, quite frankly, just having one of those supplements a day. We really need to think more holistically around the person, how the groceries are coming into the home, who's cooking the food, who's there again to support that social interaction at mealtime because they're going to eat more when they're eating with others. Um, all of those factors are leading to why someone might be malnourished in the community. I was yeah. going to say as well that we've done some surveys of um, people that are not going into hospital. So um, the Canadian Longitudinal Study of Aging is a, a very large study that we run in Canada right now on a routine basis. And consistently about a third of people identify be, to be at nutrition risk. Now, nutrition risk is before malnutrition. So it's people having risk factors like poor appetite, like um, perhaps restricting their food intake because of disease conditions, uh, having challenges with grocery shopping, maybe not eating 
um, enough uh, meat and alternatives or high protein choices in a day, that sort of thing, and losing some weight. That's nutrition risk. Uh, it can be um, the tool that's used is self-administered. So it's really easy to do. It's consistent. So they've looked at several waves now of, of, of um, the study, and it's consistent about 30%. And that's people that answer a survey, right? So we know that not everybody answers a survey, and maybe the most vulnerable don't answer a survey. And so it definitely is out there, nutrition risk. We're not identifying it quickly enough um, and intervening. And I think some older adults themselves also think, well, why would I worry about this? I'm just going to eat what I want. I'm 80 plus years old at this point. What good can it do me? So we have a lot to do around educating people, healthcare professionals in the community, but also seniors and their families. This, this malnutrition or nutrition risk could lead to that fall, that could lead to that crisis, that could lead to that hospital admission that isn't going to be necessarily as positive as we would hope uh, for many old adults, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, lots of different questions in my head, but I mean, one is, I guess, the other part is that I guess our nutritional needs change, I guess, as we age, um, um, nutritional science continues to change even as I live. Um, and so I'm sure, yeah, as you're getting to be, you know, 70, 80 year old, you're saying, well, I've always eaten this or what's right. Mm -hmm. or this is the way I was raised in terms of the food guide or whatever practices might be, yeah. um, and continuing to try and evolve around that as well as whatever other, uh, health concerns that may have happened in your body in the interim too. Yeah, exactly. And so we know, for for example, that older adults need more vitamin D to keep their bones strong. Their skin doesn't make as much. Uh, they don't absorb as much when they take it from their diet. And calcium, vitamin D, calcium, and then protein is another key nutrient that we get concerned about. Older adults don't seem to be as efficient at reassembling the amino acids in our diet back into muscle. Uh, there's endocrine changes. So, you know, you're changing your hormones change, reproduction changes as you age, that all affects other components of your body, not just reproduction. And so those hormonal changes that happen with age impact as well, uh, some of these other mechanisms and systems in the body. And we forget about, so those are the three key ones that I always refer to when older adults ask me about their nutrition. And then B12 sometimes is the other nutrient that is of concern. Um, many older adults have what we call trophic gastritis, which means the, the inflammation of the, of the stomach lining. It doesn't make the acid the way it should. You need hydrochloric acid, which is a stomach acid, to break down B12 from food. The other issue is often older adults are taking a medication, antacid medication, that depresses again that hydrochloric acid in the stomach. You don't have the acid, you can't break down the B12 from its protein carrier. And so it ends up being B12 deficient. And B12 deficiency is really easy to fix. It's just supplementing and, and uh, overcoming that. But it can have some negative effects of long-term again, including actually um, mimicking cognitive impairment. And mm -hmm. so it's really important to identify if someone's taking some of these medications or has uh, issues with their, their gastrointestinal system to think about getting the B12 checked and, and maybe supplementing with it. So, I mean, my next question, I think that part of what you've been just talking about sort of reminds me of the conversation I just had with uh, our last guest on the HQ, uh, Zanat Reza from uh, SE Health and the, and the Courage Project. Um, so, but I'm going to ask anyways, in terms of, you know, so what can be done to support, you know, nutrition of older adults once they leave hospital and to promote their recovery um, and to keep them out of the hospital in the first place? Exactly. So we have to think about, again, a holistic approach would be my view. So we um, currently will 
phone up the pharmacy when someone's leaving the hospital, make sure they've got the drugs at home when they get there, right? Why aren't we doing that for groceries? Um, some Certainly some uh, stay-at-home programs and hospitals have created these programs that do do that, but they're pockets of success. We need to make those widespread, those really good, the good programs. So having groceries in the home, or if you know you're going in for a surgery that's planned, like a knee surgery or something like that, making sure you have frozen meals at home that either you've made and frozen or a Meals on Wheels program or something like that that's made frozen meals for you that you can take out of the freezer and use. So do that planning, recognizing your recovery is going to depend on your nutrition. It is integral to your immunity, your wound healing. Uh, we need good nutrition. If we don't have it, your body won't heal. And so doing some of that planning beforehand, or if it was an emergency um, admission, making sure the planning happens with the family and others with social work, et cetera, in the community to make sure groceries are in the home when they get there. Once the groceries are, are foods in the home, making sure they eat it, right? And so treating food as medicine for that recovery is really important. So getting that across to the patient that if you don't eat well and you don't also do your physio and take your medications, you could end up back in hospital again. Uh, this wound could not heal. Um, you might fall again, whatever it may be, right? So convincing older adults themselves that eating well is going to keep them out of a hospital is very important. Similar to their families and those around them. It's not just, oh, nice to eat well and not. It's really integral to their recovery. I think that's essential. And then third, thinking about once they start to recover and moving back to normal eating, how do you keep eating well? Because it's so easy, especially when you're alone, to not plan a meal, uh, not think about it. So again, how do we um, get older adults and their families to realize this is integral to you staying independent, to you staying at home as long as you want to be, and mm -hmm. getting that mindset across. And it doesn't have to be complex. That's the other key thing I think about is, you know, you can have a complete meal without having necessarily cooking it, right? Uh, you could have a Greek yogurt with some fruit and a whole grain bread with some cheese on it. You got protein and you got you got some vegetable or some nutrients from the, the, the fruit and you've got the grains, right? So thinking about having those three food groups that every time you eat, that's the key thing. And it doesn't have to be cooked. So getting some of those tips across to people that, it doesn't have to be a sit-down hot meal to be nutritious. It can be nutritious, and these are some other options that we can create to avoid uh, that re-hospitalization re re that can happen for old adults. Hmm. I know that in terms of preparing for the conversation today, I was just reminding myself in terms of what the, the social determinants of health were, because hmm. I was wondering, is food one of them? And I was looking it up and so it's discovered that one, we've expanded the number of, of determinants that wasn't used to me. Yeah. Um, but then I also came across a, a link to the WHO um, and found that they have another list of determinants that are not the same as we have in Canada, um, which is another puzzling question. But um, but food was on theirs. Yeah. Um, and, it, and so I was just curious in, in terms of what you've been describing, um, you know, I, I, or, or maybe just to echo it back, you know, that that food does play and nutrition plays a, a really important part in our holistic health, I guess. Absolutely. And, and as I say, I think we take it for granted. And um, certainly outside of Canada, where malnutrition can be endemic with young children, for example, it's well recognized. But I think in Canada, North America, Western countries where we haven't necessarily had those situations for a long period of time or ever, perhaps uh, starvation, etc. Um, we take it for granted that oh, we're well nourished. But uh, when we think about our food supply and know how nutrient 
um, deficient it can be, are we really, right? Um, and so I think when you see the most vulnerable of our, our society, young children and older adults who need more nutrition, that's where you start to see this is where the problems are arising. I did want to add, again, post the hospital transition, I think a key thing is that in one of the studies, again, that we did with the large hospital study, we followed up people as they went back to home 30 days afterwards. Every, I shouldn't say every, about 75% saw their physician, their family physician. And it was a very small number that saw a dietitian, even the malnourished people. And so um, we've created these pathways of care that are part of the CMT, the Canadian Malnutrition Task Force, that help hopefully providers, either in hospital or in primary care, think about linking up the two. That if you are in hospital and you happen to have someone who's being discharged, who's malnourished, try to do a discharge plan to their primary care provider to tell them about the fact that they're malnourished and they should see a dietitian. Um, and uh, and vice versa, in the primary care, we need to be aware of you know, someone coming, if they come from hospital and they didn't have that, um, that discharge planning, to make sure we do a body weight and ask them about their nutrition and maybe do that screening when they first come in to see you again out of hospital to see how they're doing because maybe the malnutrition was missed in hospital as well. And so it's really important for primary care to pick up on uh, these changes, um, weight changes that will lead to functional changes. And we often call it frailty. And we think, oh, well, the person needs to use a cane or we need to put an OT assessment into their home to make sure that they're not slipping and falling. We also need a dietitian in there to support them getting enough nutrition uh, and nursing support as well and social work and others who can provide some of those community services that support the health of someone with nutrition. Yeah, I, I guess that. <clears throat> when you sort of even describe that and even describe some of the the other ways that I guess malnutrition might express itself in in terms of what we see, um, you know, frailty or or as a, as an example, um, I guess it does lead me to ask the question. I mean, do we often treat right what we see or or or, under, or um, uh, physical illnesses I, I i don't know just the, the things that they express themselves in 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 terms of the activities of daily living as opposed to underlying conditions that maybe sort of um you know that we don't associate as as medical or or you know um things where we should intervene Right. And I think I think we have to primary care is overloaded, as we all know, right, as mm -hmm. is our hospitals. But I think primary care, especially is overloaded because we expect them to do this prevention piece, but they're also reacting to the health care needs of a person coming in to see them. And often they just don't have time to do that preventative piece. I recently went to my doctor and um, I didn't have my blood pressure checked. He was just dealing with the, the things that I came in there for. Right. Um, and so I think we have to Think about how can we do those preventive pieces in a different way. Maybe it's um, through having um, a nurse in the clinic see you instead of the physician. Maybe it's through self-management. Um, but for the most vulnerable, that isn't necessarily going to be available to them, perhaps. They might not have the capacity to do that self-management piece. We need to, to figure that out, how to do that bit more preventative piece for them as well, um, which is what you're speaking of. Yeah. Yeah, or I guess even that, you know. I mean, you describe discharge that somebody will go see their primary care um, physician, um, but not necessarily see a dietitian. Is is that also a function of what is is publicly insured? Um, is that potentially? Part, uh, yeah, 
Yeah. 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 In Ontario, we certainly have family health teams, um, but that doesn't cover all the population in Ontario. I don't know the exact proportion, but it's not all of them. Uh, and certainly other provinces don't have that uh, model and some some do have a similar model. So that variability, of course, in that allied healthcare team around the physician is variable. And so we have to figure out how to equip um, the physicians that are, are lone standing to to support them how to refer to those preventative services that should be covered in my view by the by our government systems unfortunately they're not though sometimes right um so that's a a significant problem is dietitians aren't in the community not necessarily covered um and um public health that gap is there right they tend to do more population level that individual level prevention isn't being done mm -hmm. yes so, so many of uh, these other structural, I guess, um, inequities that, that lead to mm -hmm. health inequities as well. Um, so maybe, you know, looking ahead in terms of, you know, solutions and things like that, Heather, I mean, how can we specifically support older adults with cognitive impairment um, and their family caregivers in the community? I think you've touched on that, a few of them a little bit here, but maybe mm -hmm. just to go into mm -hmm. a bit more detail. Yeah. And so I think for those, again, families living with cognitive impairment, I think recognizing that nutrition um, can help keep a person on their feet, keep them a little bit more independent. Um, we all need nutrition, no matter our age and our crowded capacity. We need good nutrition, right? So it's super important throughout our lives. Um, and how do we do that in terms of supporting caregivers around recognizing um, how they can provide food in a way that is accessible to the person that has cognitive changes and might have changes in preferences then, might have swelling problems. So trying to do our best to educate those caregivers about what they might see down the road. And here's where you go for those supports and why it's important to do that, um, to address maybe those swan problems with softer food and things like that down the road. For persons, uh, older adults in general, not persons necessarily with cognitive impairment, I think we need to, for the younger set that I'm moving into pretty quickly, is to think about <laughs> self-management, right? Mm -hmm. um, we can't rely on it. It's impossible to rely on all of our uh, public services to do this for us. So we have to be aware that our nutrition is hugely important to our well-being and our aging process. And so providing those self-management tools to older adults to avoid that frailty, I think is essential. And that's exercise, nutrition, vaccines. It's um, it's also thinking about physical activity and, and social inclusion, right? To keep people, things we've been hearing a lot about since COVID-19, right? The idea of social inclusion and the importance of that. So I think we have to become aware when um, things are starting to come apart and do that self-management. And we need to build those self-management tools. That group that's in the middle, maybe they're living alone, but living alone pretty well, um, and, but they might use a cane, that sort of thing. The importance, again, of eating to stay independent is super important to them, physical activity. And so figuring out ways to eat well when you might not have the energy to do so. Maybe it is that cognitive dining program where there's a, a program at the community center that you go to and you get social interaction as well. Or maybe it's having a meal program or maybe it's having a group in your building that does a potluck and they share the food. Any way it is to try to support keeping eating and eating well as you can, I think is important. That will keep you, again, on your feet um, recovering from um, from surgeries that are planned, that sort of thing. And then we have the extremely vulnerable. And so those folks, home care, we need to build out um, 
a better home care service that doesn't just do bathing and other activities, but think about food as an essential part of that home care service. So getting the food into the home, maybe helping prepare the food, uh, maybe even getting it ready for the person to eat and maybe even taking the time, quite frankly, to sit with them for a few minutes to eat. There was um, some studies that were done in the States with meal programs that were delivered and they found that people ate better when the meal program, the person, the volunteer also came in and sat with them for a few minutes and talked to them. So they were more likely to eat their meal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that those are pretty basic things, but I think the, the, the most vulnerable, we can do that for them. It can keep them a little bit longer in their home uh, rather than going to, to a care home. Um, those middle group, you know, the importance of prevention, the importance of, you know, even if you're tired, there's other ways to get good food into your body. And then those that are the younger, the importance of starting now to make sure that aging journey is as good as it can be for as long as it can be. Hmm. Great advice for us all. Thank you, Heather. So um, any last words to you then, I think as we, uh, uh, you know, take a bite out of National Nutrition Month this this year. Well, I think, you know, Canada also has, um, we've done some really amazing things in the last few years, the, the CMTF being part of that. But Canada has gotten the recognition for developing a malnutrition standard for mm-hmm. hospitals. We now need to get that into play. So with the standards there, let's get it used and being seen as the standard, the best practice that must be there. Um, similarly, we've got these other tools that are available to us, like these transition pathways that I told you about created. We need to get them in place. And those take policies sometimes to do that. So I think um, at the level of the federal government, we need to think about the policy around food, that it's not just um, healthy food for prevent- preventing obesity, for example, and chronic diseases, but also for preventing malnutrition, that there needs to be some recognition that um Food security is part of it, but also mm-hmm. this idea that food security isn't just just income and money for food. It's being able to access food. And that means older adults and how can we support their food access in a way that supports their health. So I think some policy is really needed in this area. And other countries have been also struggling with this and recognize the importance of food. And it's a, a human right. But we need to put some teeth behind it now, I think, as well, and move towards recognizing the incredible importance it has for our health. Yeah, and I, I'm going to guess, right, that you know some of the the economic challenges that we've been facing over the last uh, couple of years um, are only going to continue to exacerbate this and put more pressure on, on this as being something really needed for 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 those who are very vulnerable. Exactly, and you think about the the food cost in hospital right now; it's it's high too, and. Um, you know, that affects the quality of the food, right? As well as in long-term care. And so it's really hard to eat well with not enough money. Absolutely, absolutely. And so we need to invest in our nutritional health. Yeah, well, uh, lots of wisdom there. It certainly has, you know, reinforced for me, um, you know, many of my own beliefs and things that I can continue to do better myself. Um, as I navigate the uh, the years ahead of me and with my family. So um, I hope that our listeners can take some of this as well and take it back um, into in terms of their own work and their organizations in, the, in our health system. So thank you again for, for helping us to learn. Thank you, Dale. It's great. Okay, take care. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. 
please join us next time.